Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Wednesday, February 21st, 2024. The Biden administration announces it is forgiving student loan debt to over 150,000 borrowers, a total of $1.2 billion. We'll talk about it with Washington Post higher education reporter Danielle Douglas-Gabriel and hear from Education Secretary Miguel Cardona and President Joe Biden. Congressman Jim Jordan, chair of the Judiciary Committee, and Congressman Jamie Raskin, ranking Democrat on the Oversight Committee, leaders in the impeachment inquiry of President Biden, respond to prosecutors saying that the FBI informant charged with lying about saying Joe and Hunter Biden received bribes from Ukraine got his information from Russian intelligence officials. Congressman Jordan saying, well, I mean, it is what it is. It doesn't change the fundamental facts. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm talks about promoting electric vehicles after a recent New York Times article suggested the Biden administration may pull back on that effort. Supreme Court hears a case challenging the EPA's good neighbor clean air rules where states that pollute need to make sure it does not go downwind and harm people in other states. State Department responds to reports that Russian President Vladimir Putin is optimistic about winning the war in Ukraine. And in the British House of Commons, debate on a motion for an immediate ceasefire between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. A Washington Post article reads, starting Wednesday, President Biden will email 153,000 student loan borrowers enrolled in his signature repayment plan to let them know their debts, totaling $1.2 billion, have been forgiven. In a moment, we'll talk with a reporter who wrote that article. But first, Education Secretary Miguel Cardona interviewed this morning by NPR on this latest student loan debt relief. We're providing debt relief to people that need it the most. The folks that are targeted in this program are people who uh, I think 75 percent of them are Pell eligible, meaning economically they could use the support. We're also addressing the root cause of the issue, which is the cost of college has gotten out of control. So we're increasing accountability measures to make sure that there's a good return on investment in higher education. Altogether, we're fixing a broken system. Education Secretary Miguel Cardona on National Public Radio. Danielle Douglas-Gabriel is a national higher education reporter for The Washington Post, writing an article today about the latest student loan forgiveness announcement from the Biden administration. She joins us now on the phone. Thanks for being with us. Who qualifies for this one? So with this particular form of relief, anyone who borrowed less than $12,000 for college and have been paying on their loans for at least 10 years would qualify for this relief. And what's nice is that you don't have to do anything to get it. The Department of Education has identified folks. And if you're enrolled in the SAVE repayment plan, then you're good. And you note that those who qualify are getting these emails that has more information than just about loan forgiveness. It's almost like a pitch from the president. <laughs> I mean, it certainly does hone in on the fact that look at what I'm doing for you. Um, it is it's an election year, you know, and it's certainly President Biden is not the first president to try to tie himself to a popular 
um, pop federal policy. I think we saw Donald Trump do this with the stimulus checks that went out at the beginning of the coronavirus uh, pandemic. And certainly Biden is in a position right now where I think he wants to, as much as possible, attach himself to the fact that his administration has forgiven and canceled more debt than anyone else and really hasn't gotten much credit for it. For people who have not been following this closely, the the president proposed a very large, comprehensive student loan forgiveness plan that was struck down by the Supreme Court. And then every so often we hear about a batch of people with smaller loan amounts forgiven. What's the legal justification? And is this haphazard or is there a plan to all this? There's certainly a plan to all of this. I think what's fascinating is that these bits and pieces of loan forgiveness that we keep hearing about all are tied to existing programs that have long been established. And I'm talking decades in some instances, but they weren't working properly for borrowers. Oftentimes, uh, borrowers were tripped up by the bureaucracy of it. So the Biden administration came in and played cleanup man in a lot of ways. Right. And what we're seeing is, you know, people who are teachers, doctors, uh, social workers and the like who qualified for, say, public service loan forgiveness, one of these programs, but never got in because they were in the wrong repayment plan. Well, Biden created a waiver uh, a couple of years ago to allow them to get credit for all of the time in public service. And a lot of this debt is along those lines. And what I guess is more solid than the plan that was struck down by the Supreme Court is that these are existing programs established under the authority of the Higher Education Act. So they're a lot more um, legally grounded than what went before the Supreme Court. We're talking with Danielle Douglas Gabriel from The Washington Post. Have there been legal challenges to these recent announcements of forgiveness? There was a challenge to uh, the income-based adjustment, uh, income-driven repayment adjustment that the president proposed, but that case was was shut down. Uh, I think, you know, the idea of being able to comb through people's accounts and see how long they've been paying and give them automatic forgiveness if they've been in repayment for more than two decades uh, didn't sit well with some conservative groups because of the mass amount of debt that would be forgiven. But it wasn't a successful challenge, again, because these programs in particular are rooted in the Higher Education Act, unlike the Supreme Court Uh, case that we saw last year, which was rooted in the HEROES Act. Totally different authority, a lot more uh, shaky in terms of the legal standing. So these forms of forgiveness through these existing programs are a lot stronger. Compared to the total amount of student loan debt that's out there, how much has been forgiven? So far, we're talking about $138 billion for about 3.9 million people. I mean, the federal government is holding $1.6 trillion, and that's for more than 40 million people. So it is, you know, nominal when you think about the overall pot. But for the people who are receiving this forgiveness, it's life-changing. I've spoken to a lot of borrowers that I've covered over the years who were able to take advantage of some of these programs. And especially for the older borrowers, if you're talking people in retirement who are still who were still paying on their student loans, this is tremendously meaningful. Danielle Douglas Gabriel, National Higher Education Reporter for the Washington Post. Find her articles at WashingtonPost.com and on X at Danny Doug Post. Thank you very much. Thank you. And some reaction from members of Congress. Pramila Jayapal, Democrat of Washington State, posting on X. Huge. President Biden has canceled all student debt for more than 150,000 borrowers through his SAVE plan. The administration has remained committed to canceling student debt, 
Even in the wake of SCOTUS efforts to block relief, Democrats will keep working to deliver. And this post from Congressman Matt Rosendale, Republican of Montana, Biden's student loan redistribution scheme will use another $1.2 billion of your tax dollars to cancel student loan debt for over 150,000 borrowers. This is a slap in the face to responsible Americans who know when you take out a loan, you pay it back. And President Biden himself making the announcement at the city library in Culver City, California. Under my save plan, we're cutting in half to 5% the undergraduate borrowers, what undergraduate borrowers have to pay after their living expenses are accounted for. That means no one with an undergraduate loan, whether it's a community college or a four-year college, will have to pay more than 5% of the discretionary income to repay those loans starting in July. And that's income after you pay for necessities like food and housing. Already 7.5 million Americans have enrolled in this so-called SAVE plan. And there's more than 4 million of those borrowers had their monthly payments dropped to zero if they were living paycheck to paycheck below a certain level. This plan is the most generous repayment program ever, and today we're doing it even faster and quicker than ever before. I'm proud to announce our SAVE plan. We are immediately canceling the debt loans for over 150,000 borrowers, nearly six months ahead of schedule. Starting today, we're canceling student debt for borrowers who are enrolled in the SAVE plan and have been paying student loans for as little as 10 years. If they took less than if they borrow less than $2,000, it's forgiven. $12,000, excuse me. It's, the loan is forgiven. This action will be a huge help to graduates of community college and borrowers of smaller loans, putting them back on track faster for debt forgiveness than ever before. President Biden at the library in Culver City, California. Fox 11 Los Angeles writes that President Biden set to speak in Culver City Wednesday to conclude a planned two-day visit to the Southland that also included a fundraiser in the gated Beverly Hills community. And the White House issued a statement Wednesday that President Biden will issue an executive order regarding the security at nation's ports and additional actions to strengthen maritime cybersecurity, fortify supply chains, and strengthen the United States' industrial base. Wall Street today, the Dow up 48, NASDAQ down 49, S&P up 6. Top members of Congress engaged in the President Biden impeachment inquiry are responding to the former FBI informant Alexander Smirnoff charged with lying about the president and his son Hunter taking $5 million bribes from business dealings in Ukraine. And prosecutors saying in a court filing that Smirnoff said after his arrest that Russian intelligence officials gave him the false information about Hunter Biden. Congressman Jim Jordan, Republican from Ohio, Judiciary Committee Chair, spoke to reporters today in Washington. Chairman Jordan, what do you think of the Smirnoff indictment? Well, I mean, it is what it is, so uh, it doesn't change the fundamental facts. We got There are four fundamental facts that Hunter Biden gets put on the board of Burisma, uh, he's not qualified to be on the board. He gets, he gets put on that board and gets paid a million dollars a year. Second, as I said, he's not qualified to be on the board. He said so himself. Third, uh, in Dubai on December 4th, 2015, the executives at Burisma, Mr. Zolachevsky, um, Mr. Pizarski, specifically asked Hunter Biden, can you weigh in with D.C. and help us with the pressure we are facing from the prosecutor general in Ukraine? Um, Hunter Biden makes a call. Devin Archer told us he made a call to his dad, to Joe Biden, 
And then three days later, uh, Joe Biden goes to Ukraine and conditions the release of American tax money on the firing of the prosecutor applying the pressure to the company that Hunter Biden set on the board of. Those facts, they don't change what, regardless of what this, said, uh, this confidential that, human sources said. Informant now charged with some of the most corroborating evidence. We've had that in interview. Lots yeah, it, it did corroborate what what I just said there, but it doesn't change the facts. But those those, his, those allegations from the FD 1023 are now found to all be lies. So how does that impact the investigation? I think you should ask that. You should ask the FBI why they were so reluctant. <laughs> They told us if, if we don't, uh, when we wanted to see the 1023, they said this could jeopardize national security, the safety of this confidential human source. You can't know his name. They didn't want to show it to us. Then they finally did. I mean, this is a guy they paid, I think, since 2010. So 14 years they've been paying this guy. Um, and he's a trusted source. And now we find out. Plus, I think there's sort of the, you know, when Christopher Steele lied to the FBI about uh, President Trump, he gets paid more. When Smirnoff lies to the FBI about President Biden, no, he gets indicted. I mean, go figure. So um, it doesn't change the, the fundamental facts. It doesn't change the facts. It does change the facts. Those are no longer facts. Those are not, those are not true. The four things I just said, they're absolutely true. But the bribery, did, did Hunter Biden get put on the board of Burisma? Yes. Was he paid a million dollars a year? Yes. Did Joe Biden condition the release of tax money uh, uh, for the firing of the prosecutor who was applying the pressure? Yes. All, those, all four of those things are facts, absolutely, um, regardless of what the confidential human source may or may not have said. What do you make of Smirnov's connections to Russians, high-level Russian? We'll find out. That's uh, I mean, obviously. That, you know, David Weiss, the special counsel, said he may be trying to influence this year's yeah. presidential election. I will tell you this, Scott Brady, when Scott Brady, uh, U.S. attorney in Pittsburgh, when we talked to him, he had actually checked out uh, the confidential human source, uh, where he traveled to, when he traveled to, and said that he, he felt he had the indicia of credibility. David Weiss thinks otherwise, and they've indicted him. We'll, we'll have to see. Congressman Jim Jordan, Judiciary Committee Chair, Republican from Ohio, speaking to reporters outside the closed deposition of James Biden, President Joe Biden's brother. The House Oversight and Accountability Committee is also taking part in the President Biden impeachment inquiry. And Jamie Raskin of Maryland, the ranking Democrat on the committee, stopped by to speak with reporters. Hello, everyone. I wanted to just start by restating the obvious, which is that the impeachment investigation um, essentially ended yesterday in substance, if not in form, with the explosive revelation that Mr. Smirnoff's uh, allegations about Ukrainian Burisma payments to Joe Biden were uh, concocted uh, along with Russian intelligence agents. And it appears like the whole thing is not only obviously false and fraudulent, but a product of Russian disinformation and propaganda. And that's been the motor force behind this investigation for more than a year. Congressman Jamie Raskin, part of his opening statement to the reporters, and they asked him some questions about Alexander Smirnov. Starting Smirnov, they, uh, they, the Justice Department said in its filing that he said he had Russian contacts in it. I don't know if it was totally clear that they were saying that they also knew that those contacts were real because the guy is apparently a liar. Um, Are you sure that that they're trying to say he he definitely has these Russian connections? Well, again, we're we're relying on the representations under oath uh, yesterday by um, the U.S. attorney and the special counsel in the investigation. That's David Weiss, who is a Trump uh, appointee. And uh, he is the one 
who um, asserted that there were multiple continuing and long-term encounters with Russian uh, intelligence operatives. And of course, that's perfectly consistent with everything that we know about um, the uh, efforts by Vladimir Putin uh, and his Russian intelligence operatives to interfere in American presidential elections. It happened in 2016. We had 17 of our intelligence uh, and national security agencies finding that Vladimir Putin had attempted to engage in um, destabilization uh, and cyber surveillance of the DNC, of the Hillary Clinton campaign. They'd engaged in disinformation and propaganda, propaganda campaigns through the social media. That was in 2016. In 2020, uh, the Treasury Department under President Trump ended up imposing sanctions on various Russian operatives working for Vladimir Putin. Um, and so this repeats that pattern. I mean, there's been an effort up until this day. And my colleagues, um, when confronted with this evidence, just say, Russia hoax, Russia hoax. What part of it is the hoax? Is it the war in Ukraine? Is it the death of Navalny? Um, what, what is hoax like about it? The, the hoax is that there's a Russian hoax. Uh, there's not a Russian hoax. There's been a series of efforts by Vladimir Putin to destabilize and undermine American political democracy. And he's done the same thing in other countries around the world. Congressman Jamie Raskin, Democrat from Maryland, Oversight and Accountability Committee ranking member, speaking to reporters outside the closed deposition of James Biden, President Biden's brother, in the Biden impeachment inquiry today on Capitol Hill. CNN has a story. Special counsel David Weiss asked a California judge Wednesday to send indicted ex-FBI informant Alexander Smirnoff back to jail while he awaits trial. A magistrate judge in Las Vegas released Smirnoff on Tuesday, finding that even though Smirnoff posed a flight risk, he could be released under certain conditions. Those conditions include GPS monitoring, confiscating his two passports, and ordering him to remain in Nevada, where he currently lives. Former President Donald Trump, a leading Republican presidential candidate for 2024, was asked Tuesday night about who he might pick as his vice presidential running mate if he gets his party's nomination. He gave Fox News host Laura Ingram at a town hall hosted by Fox in Greenville, South Carolina, a list at least half a dozen long. Biden ran, he pledged he was going to pick a female vice president in 2020. What qualities are you looking for in your vice presidential pick? Well, always the first quality has to be somebody that you think will be a good president, because if something should happen, you have to have somebody that's going to be a great president. A lot of people are talking about that gentleman right over there. <laughs> and he's, been, he's been so great. He's been such a great advocate. I, I have to say, I don't. this is in a very positive way, Tim Scott, he has been much better for me than he was for himself. I watched his campaign. <laughs> And he doesn't like talking about himself, but boy, does he talk about Trump. And I said, you know, I called him. I said, Tim, you're better for me than you were for yourself. But he's fantastic, and he's a fantastic person. Uh, so no, I want somebody that can Someone be, who can step into the role. Most importantly, you have to view that. The audience has uh, been asked who they think would be a good choice, and various names came up. Um, uh, one of them was, of course, Vivek Ramaswamy. No. He's made a big splash. Ron DeSantis, who's made in, making an appearance today in South Carolina, we just found out. Um, obviously, Tim Scott, Byron Donalds, and a, a big uh, presence here for Tulsi Gabbard. 
Um, very interesting. Um, are, and Christy Nome as well, I should say. Right. Are, are, are they all on your short yeah, list? And when can, you, when can we expect that you will so announce your choice? The one thing that always surprises me is that the VP choice has absolutely no impact. It's whoever the president is. It just seems. Uh, I remember when Sarah Palin was actually picked, and she did have a big up, and then uh, they just went after her at a level that nobody's seen. The Republicans themselves went after what they did. But you'll be a one-term president because you've already served, yeah. so you can only serve for one term, although they say you'll never leave office, I assume. Uh, yeah, that, you'll never say. leave. There'll never be an ele another say, election don't again. don't do it. He'll never leave. He's yeah. never going. Oh, these people. They um, are so for that reason, it is important so, who, you're, who you so pick. So I think it's very important. But look, first is that, as we said, it has to you know, do with whoever is, you know, it's a very important position for that reason. Uh, you would like to get somebody that could help you from the voter standpoint. And honestly, all of those people are good. They're all good. They're all solid. And I always say, I want people with common sense because there's so many things happening in this country that don't make sense. Former President Donald Trump, Republican presidential candidate at a Fox News Channel town hall with Laura Ingram Tuesday night in Greenville, South Carolina. South Carolina holds its presidential primary on Saturday. A Washington Post headline today, Donald Trump and allies planning militarized mass deportations, detention camps. And the subhead reads, as President Donald Trump sought to use military planes and bases for deportation, now he and his allies are talking about a new effort that current and former officials warn could be impractical and dangerous. This article from The Hill, a top legal advocacy group for immigrants, is calling on the Biden administration to flex its executive muscle to better manage immigration amid legislative paralysis on the matter. The National Immigrant Justice Center on Wednesday released a 10-step list of actions available to the executive branch that advocates say would bring order to the immigration system while improving conditions for immigrants from new arrivals to long-term U.S. residents. That was from The Hill. Immigration was one of the topics today at a discussion about bipartisanship held in Washington, D.C. with two governors, Wes Moore, Democrat of Maryland, and Spencer Cox, Republican from Utah. As we know, there's been an unprecedented surge of migrants coming across uh, the southern border. We now have Republicans saying the border is out of control. They've turned it into a huge issue. Is that criticism accurate? Yes, very accurate. It's very accurate because, I mean, and it's, and it's, it is, it is remarkably frustrating because uh, it's the governors who end up taking on the brunt, right? It's the governors who end up taking on the responsibility of making sure that people are safe and housed and closed, et cetera, and without any form of either, you know, without enough supports and without enough policy that can really help to come up with a long-term solution. I actually, I signed a letter with eight other governors uh, a little over a month ago just, uh, you know, asking Congress to be able to move on both budgetary allocation coming towards the state, but also coming up with a border policy yeah. that's, actually, that's actually functional. And so it does have very real implications because, you know, the, the, the responsible governors, um, our, ha our habit is not going to be, well, let's just ship them off to other governors, right? Responsible governors don't do that. Well, speaking of border policy, Governor Cox, someone you know, I, I'm sure, uh, Senator James Langford, conservative, a longtime conservative, state of Oklahoma, uh, helped to lead a bipartisan effort to come up with a proposal that would be acceptable uh, to both sides. It involves giving the president the authority to cut off all immigration uh, for a period, makes it harder to grant legal asylum. As we know, that's been uh, rejected. What, yeah. 
what happens now when, when something that's been led by someone in, you know, at the heart of conservative thinking uh, doesn't work? Yeah, it's, it's incredibly frustrating. I, I, you know, I don't know what else to say. I, I, I mean, I think this is a very complicated issue when we try to simplify it. And, and, and uh, I, I think both sides do this a, a little too much. There is so much more the president could be doing right now. And there's so much that Congress needs to do as well. Uh, and, and Congress has, has kicked this count down the road now for 40 years uh, and, and continues to do so. But, but even that one, I, I think it's, it's just illustrative of how broken uh, our, our Congress is right now. Yes, I, I understand you know, the, the way it happened and, and who was responsible for doing the negotiation, but, but those negotiations happened behind closed doors. 99% of Congress never saw that law until it was actually presented to them. And then they're, you know, I, I don't know how you do it in your state, but I'm pretty sure it's not like that. Uh, it's certainly not like that in my state. Um, you're supposed to you know, negotiate, bring it out, let people offer amendments, go through a process, and, and that didn't happen at all. And so, yeah, th there are a lot of people who felt left out of that process, and then, uh, and then Republicans bolted. Again, there has to be a fix, and we have to have willing people who are willing to do that. I admit that my side probably should have stayed at the table longer and, and done that. Um, and, and then, but, but then last night, you have uh, three candidates for senator Democrats in, in California saying they would not have supported that, that bill as well. So I, you know, I don't know what the answer is. I just know that we're not getting any answers by the way they're doing it right now. Governor Spencer Cox, Republican from Utah, and Governor Wes Moore, Democrat from Maryland, interviewed by Judy Woodruff, PBS NewsHour senior correspondent at the Economic Club of Washington, D.C. Today, you can find the full program at our video library, cspan.org. Governor Cox is the current chair of the National Governors Association, and in that capacity is sponsoring an initiative called Disagree Better. And today's focus was bipartisanship. Washington Today continues in a moment. This is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team, along with my colleague, Nate. Join us as we celebrate C-SPAN's 45th anniversary and our inaugural Founders Day campaign. It all started as a bold experiment on March 19, 1979, when C-SPAN first brought coverage of the House of Representatives into living rooms across America. Let's celebrate C-SPAN's visionary founders who believed in offering unfiltered access to the inner workings of our political process. From Congress to the White House to the courts and beyond, C-SPAN has documented history unfolding without commentary or spin for over four decades. Help us keep it going. Visit cspan.org slash donate today to give a gift in celebration of C-SPAN's Founders Day. Your donation honors the original vision of C-SPAN's founders and helps to advance our mission for years to come. Make your donation today at cspan.org slash donate. Thank you. Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast on the free C-SPAN Now mobile app and wherever you find your podcasts. A New York Times article from last weekend reads that in a concession to automakers and labor unions, the Biden administration intends to relax elements of one of its most ambitious strategies to combat climate change, limits on tailpipe emissions that are designed to get Americans to switch from gas-powered cars to electric vehicles, according to three people familiar with the plan. Instead of essentially requiring automakers to rapidly ramp up sales of electric vehicles over the next few years, the administration would give car manufacturers more time, with a sharp increase in sales not required until after 2030, these people said. They asked to remain anonymous because the regulations had not been finalized. The administration plans to publish the final rule by early spring. That was the New York Times article 
last weekend. Energy Secretary Granholm was asked today about electric vehicles, interviewed by Emily Wilkins, CNBC correspondent and National Press Club president. I know there's also, of course, a lot of discussion right now among electric vehicles, um, and there's certainly been a lot that your uh, department has done to try to incentivize the production and the promotion of electric vehicles. Um, but I want to kind of talk, ask a little bit about what seems to be an imbalance right now, that there are a lot of companies uh, that are coming to the U.S. hoping to build electric vehicles to get some of these incentives. Um, but at the same point, for consumers, it's still a little bit difficult for them to find models that meet all of the requirements yeah. Yeah. for the – how – what is your thought on that? Is this something that's just going to even out over time? Yeah, I or think there's need I mean, to be some it's, it's a great point. I mean, obviously, we want to incentivize the domestic production, and we want to make sure people have access to these tax credits. And so the strategy is to get – um, manufacturing back in the U.S. And so incentivizing those tax credits, the, the OEMs, the, the automakers, they want their customers to qualify for those tax credits. Well, if they do, they're bringing their uh, production back on shore to be able to enable customers to get $7,500 off the hood at a dealer when they buy an electric vehicle. So it is, you know, we're, we're seeing a whole bunch of new models coming online, a whole bunch more manufacturing happening. And, you know, I think the unevenness of this whole push will uh, even out over time. But the bottom line is it really is the, the amount of investment and of work that's being done on EVs and batteries across the country is just... Uh, yeah. So amazing. And I know there's a lot being done on charging stations as well, mm -hmm. which I know is kind of a big factor for a lot of consumers when they look they at getting the electric vehicles. want the charging stations made in America, too. You, you also, but you also want them to be available when you're on the highway totally. and you realize you don't. I mean, you, you drive an electric vehicle. Yes. Have you had moments where yes. you've, you've been low on power or had to scramble for a charging a station? Absolutely. And this is why, again, the president's and the bipartisan infrastructure law, $7.5 billion to be able to fill in the pockets where you can't charge. So we have a joint office between the Department of Energy and the Department of Transportation. All of the states now have their plans approved and their money in hand. And you're starting to see them break ground on adding charging stations in states. And the charging stations, the first tranche of money went to the transportation corridors so that you have to have a charging station in a trans in a, like on the freeway etc on a highway every 50 miles uh, not more than a mile off the freeway it has to be app enabled so you'll you'll start to see those so that it fills in the gaps where the private sector won't go because the demand isn't so high right and then the second tranche was for areas like um, in uh, urban areas or rural areas where, again, the private sector wasn't going, but we want to make sure we've got enough charging in place. So all of that is happening right now. But, yeah, clearly we need more. We have about 170,000 charging stations across the country. Now the president's goal is to get to 500,000. We're going to think we're going to get there by 2026. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm at the National Press Club today. Moderator Emily Wilkins, the current Press Club president and CNBC correspondent. The Energy Secretary also said today that the Biden administration's pause on approvals of exports of liquefied natural gas to evaluate the environmental, economic and climate impacts will last months. She did not say how many. It will affect 12 projects, she said, and according to her, not affect relationships with allies that import LNG.
A story from Reuters, the U.S. Supreme Court's conservative justices on Wednesday appeared sympathetic to a bid by three Republican-led states and several energy companies to block an environmental protection agency regulation aimed at reducing ozone emissions that may worsen air pollution in neighboring states. Ohio, Indiana, and West Virginia, as well as pipeline operators including Kinder Morgan, Power Producers, and U.S. Steel Corporation, are seeking to avoid complying with the EPA's Good Neighbor Plan, restricting ozone pollution from upwind states, while they contest its legality in a lower court. During arguments in the case on Wednesday, some justices expressed concern about whether the Supreme Court intervention was warranted at this time. But the questions posed by some of the conservative justices focused on whether the EPA's rule should be enforceable against the challengers, given that the regulation no longer regulates 23 upwind states as intended, but only 11 because of lower court actions pausing it in 12 states. That's from Reuters. Here is some of the oral argument. We start with Justice Elena Kagan questioning the attorney for the states, Mathura Sridharan. What do you think the EPA should have done? I mean, there are 23 states here. Mm-hmm. Was the EPA required to sort of consider every permutation, you know, <laughs> if 22 states um, are in the plan, if 21 states are in the plan, if 13 states are in the plan, if five states are in the plan? Which states are they? Um, uh, one of my clerks who does math better than I do tells me that there are two to the 23rd power, um, which is like four million different permutations. What was the EPA supposed to do? Well, I'm not going to go as far as to say that the EPA had to do necessarily every possible permutation of two to the power of 23 minus one. But, but. I have to tell my clerk it's minus one. (laughs) But plus one or minus one. What the EPA had to do as a first matter is acknowledge the problem. So we're very far from talking about the line drawing things that you're talking about. Um, What the EPA had to do was consider whether under this method it would need to address contingencies. And we're familiar in other areas of law where, for example, in elections law, where you run a number of simulations and decide, you know what, we have a critical mass of a particular solution. Let's apply that. Let's go ahead with that. Thank you. Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan questioned the attorney for the states bringing this case, Ohio v. EPA. Arguing on behalf of the federal agency, the Deputy Solicitor General Malcolm Stewart, your question by Justice Brett Kavanaugh. In response to the comments that said the SIP disapprovals were going to be problematic, EPA could have come back and said, well, if some of the states are knocked out, the requirements will still be the same, even if there are only 15 states or even if there are only 10 states, because and kind of explain that reasoning. That is, as I understand it, absent, and the problem is we're not sure if the requirements would be the same with 11 states as with 23, and and it's just not explained. I I think the comments were raised at kind of a lower level of specificity than, than you might imagine. That is, there were comments to the effect that your federal plan is in trouble because valid SIP disapprovals are a condition precedent to the federal plan and the SIP disapprovals were bad. And to to a point, those commenters have been vindicated. That is, several states have obtained stays of their SIP disapprovals and the result has been... But but when the EPA came back, EPA said severability. So EPA understood the comment 
But I, no, no, I think the comment... Uh, EPA but, understood the comment and came back and said, even if we have fewer states, we're going to plow ahead anyway. And then the question I think that's raised is why and how? And I, that's I, just kind of pretend nothing happened, just go ahead with the 11 states in this instance. I think EPA understood the comment to be to the extent that your SIPTIS approvals are challenged and either stayed or ultimately struck down, your federal plan will be less effective. I don't think any commenter was saying specifically, if some disapprovals are stayed, the plan will become arbitrary and capricious as to the other states. Deputy Solicitor General Malcolm Stewart questioned by Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh in today's case, Ohio v. EPA, SIP, S-I-P, stands for State Implementation Plan. The case about the EPA proposed rules meant to protect downwind states from dangerous levels of ozone pollution. It's known as the Good Neighbor Plan. A Supreme Court decision today reported by Bloomberg Law. The court ruled Georgia can't retry a man who was acquitted by reason of insanity for one charge in the murder of his adoptive mother, despite conflicting verdicts on other charges. In the unanimous decision on Wednesday, the court said the Fifth Amendment's double jeopardy clause prevents the state from retrying Damien McElrath for the crime that resulted in the not guilty verdict, regardless of any inconsistency with the jury's other verdicts. This is Washington Today. On the war in Ukraine, a story from The Guardian in the United Kingdom, Vladimir Putin remains intent on trying to defeat and dominate Ukraine two years after launching an invasion that has caused more than half a million casualties, Western officials said in a fresh assessment of the war. The Russian president is thought to be notably more optimistic than a year ago, buoyed up by the U.S.'s failure to sign off $60 billion more in military aid and limited recent successes on the battlefield. U.S. State Department spokesman Matthew Miller asked about it. Apparently there's a new uh, intelligence assessment from Western governments suggesting that Putin thinks he eventually can win the war in Ukraine for three reasons. One, the possible return of Donald Trump to the White House. Two, increased conscription. And three, a rejuvenated military manufacturing sector. Does state believe on the record that Putin does believe that these factors can help him win the war? Does this increase the need to provide funding for Ukraine if, in fact, there's a belief that Putin may now have some uh, leverage in this situation? So I never want to discuss intelligence matters from here, uh, real or imagined, but uh, I think it should be obvious to everyone that Vladimir Putin is watching what happens in Washington closely. Uh, you have to assume that he is watching, watching what happens in Congress. <clears throat> I think he has always assumed from the beginning of this conflict that he can wait out the West, that the West's attention would flag, that the West's interests would flag, <laughs> that the West would be uh, unwilling to maintain sanctions. Uh, and so far, the West has proved, them, them, uh, proved him wrong. And I don't just mean the United States, but Europe as well, which took dramatic action early on to wean itself from Russian energy, something I think Putin never thought would happen. But uh, I have to think that the entire world, including those in Moscow, are watching whether the United States Congress is willing to step up and continue to fund Ukraine to help it defend itself from Russia's aggression. We have been very clear in the Biden administration what we think ought to happen. We have been very clear what is in the United States national security interests, and we will continue to make that case. And we hope that Congress will respond, because as I said, the entire world is watching. Does the U.S., though, actually believe that Putin now has the advantage? 
given... No, we do not believe that at all. If you look at um, uh, the shape of this conflict over the past, not just two years, but even the, the, the most recent history, yes, you have seen Russia make gains on the battlefield. We saw gains just over this, week, uh, this last weekend because uh, Ukraine was not able to properly resupply its troops, in large part because Congress has not taken the action that we think it, sh uh, it should to continue to support Ukraine as it, as it fights to, to defend its territory. But you have also seen Ukraine make dramatic uh, uh, improvements on the battlefield, most significantly, I think, in the Black Sea, where they have pushed the Russian fleet back. They have opened up a new shipping corridor that has allowed them to export not just wheat and grain, uh, but also other manufactured goods through the Black Sea, something that uh, was not possible in the early days of the war when Russia had blockaded uh, Ukrainian ports. So we think they'll continue to make progress there, uh, and we will continue to support them to the best of our ability. But we need a, a partner in Congress to help us. State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller at his news conference in Washington. Story from CNN, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov were a matter of yards from each other at the G20 Foreign Minister's meeting in Rio de Janeiro Wednesday, but they did not speak or even appear to look at each other during a roughly 15-minute photo session of the ministerial meeting. Now to the war between Israel and Hamas. This is from the Times of Israel. The Knesset voted to back Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's declaration opposing the unilateral creation of a Palestinian state following growing international calls for the revival of efforts to reach a two-state solution to the decades-long conflict. Netanyahu's Likud party says in a statement that 99 of 120 lawmakers voted to support the declaration passed earlier this week by the cabinet. That was from the Times of Israel. The prime minister spoke after the vote. The people of Israel and their elected representatives are united today as never before. The Knesset voted overwhelmingly to oppose any attempt to unilaterally impose a Palestinian state on Israel. Such an attempt will only endanger Israel and will prevent the genuine peace that we all seek. Peace can only be achieved after we achieve total victory over Hamas and through direct negotiations between the parties. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Politico Europe has a story from London. Angry members of Parliament staged a walkout in the House of Commons Wednesday night and vented their fury at Speaker Lindsay Hoyle as a symbolic vote on a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas descended into chaos. MPs from the Scottish National Party and a raft of conservatives walked out of the parliamentary chamber in protest of Hoyle, who they accused of tipping the scales in favor of labor, a charge denied by Hoyle in an emotional statement. Wednesday night's fractious scenes came after a day of Commons intrigue over the Gaza vote. MPs had been set to vote on a motion from the Scottish National Party calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. The SNP used its dedicated opposition day in the Commons to push the motion, but Hoyle intervened to allow the opposition Labour Party, which feared a rebellion from its own MPs amid pressure over the response to the conflict, to put forward its own amendment to the motion, which also backed an immediate humanitarian ceasefire, but included softer language on Israel's conduct in the war. That was from Politico Europe. Here's how it all began with Brendan O'Hara from the SNP presenting his party's motion. I beg to move the SNP motion that has been tabled in my name and those of my right honourable and honourable friends, which calls for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza from all combatants. And I wish to put on record once again our unequivocal condemnation of the Hamas attack of October the 7th 
and repeat both our call for the immediate release of all the hostages and to see those involved in those atrocities called to account for their actions. Here, here. The war in Gaza is one of the great defining moments of our time. Yet, until today, this House has not been given the opportunity to debate both the unfolding human catastrophe and the wider implications for regional and global stability. Nor have we had the opportunity to debate the urgent and pressing need for an immediate ceasefire as an essential first step to finding a lasting and just peace. Mr Speaker, no one would deny that Israel has the right to defend itself. Every country has that right. What no country has the right to do, however, is to lay siege to a civilian population, carpet bomb densely inhabited areas, drive people from their homes, erase an entire civilian infrastructure and impose a collective punishment involving the cutting off of water, electricity, food and medicine from civilians. And no country, regardless of who they are, in the name of self-defence, can kill civilians at such a pace and on such a scale that in just 16 weeks, almost 30,000 are known to have died, with a further 80,000 injured. Mr Speaker, we cannot allow the core principle of self-defence to be so ruthlessly exploited and manipulated in in order to legitimise the slaughter of innocent civilians. Brendan O'Hara, a member of the British Parliament and of the Scottish National Party during debate today in the House of Commons in London, the SNP motion was amended by a Labour Party motion with different language concerning the ceasefire. But the fact that Labour Party was able to offer it on Opposition Day in Great Britain caused the stir. More from the Politico Europe article, a visibly emotional Speaker Lindsay Hoyle eventually apologized, but only once Labour's motion had passed. He said, I have tried to do what I thought was the right thing for all sides in the House to shouts from conservative and SNP lawmakers, according to this article. And Hoyle went on, it is regrettable, and I apologize for the decision that didn't end up in the place that I wished. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter, Word for Word. It's free. And get the stories making headlines in Washington sent to your inbox every day. Subscribe at cspan.org slash connect. Have a good night. 